we thank you tonight. Thank you for our chance to be together as a community. Lord, I pray again as we think about Peter, we think about your interaction with Peter, Lord, tonight. We remember it was done in the context of the community you created. It was done in the presence of the disciples. It was done together as life was meant to be done. Lord, I pray as we think about your word to Peter tonight, would we remember that in so many ways it is our own story. It is our own restoration we see reflected in Peter. Our hope as a church is that we would do the same thing for people that you did for Peter. And we bring them to their point of pain. We bring them to their hurt. Not abandon them there, but walk them through it. That we would suffer with them and grieve with them and rejoice with them when that moment comes, when they find true healing, Lord. But we know that your plan is to restore people from their, their failings, from their brokenness. Would you help us to do that? In this church and in your church worldwide, we remember the example you set, Jesus, and what you did for Peter, and how life-changing it was for him, that it changed everything about him, that your spirit coming upon him, and your example as a shepherd for him changed the man he was. Would we be changed by that example as well in our own lives, and would you help us to do the same for others? Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to have you all here this week. I'm so thankful you're here as we finish up the Gospel of John. Ten months. Ten months we've been going through this book. And it's brought down to this last sermon. And this one in particular is... I, I mean, I guess I don't know how many of you have probably ever preached a sermon, but I'm sure you have things in your life that you've really wanted to go well, you know, that you just really want to, uh, that you're passionate about, right? That you just really want to see flourish and succeed. You just want to, have, you know, hit it out of the park kind of thing. You know, maybe that's a, a sporting event you went to and, you know, or maybe you're playing sports like Tyler used to be in the golf team in high school and he just wants to get a sweet hole in one. On, on a hole, it'd be awesome, you know, maybe you let Russell Wilson play the fourth quarter of today's game, he was probably excited to be in there, and they took him out, which is frustrating, um, that's this sermon for me, because if I look at what has defined who I am, this is it, it's a sermon like this. I was excited to preach through John because I was excited to do several sermons throughout this series. I was really excited to do John 4 with the woman at the well. And we did that on Easter. I was excited to do that because that's where this name of this church came from, Wellspring Church. With the woman at the well, not realizing that she was meeting the wellspring of life. She came for a water to draw that was earthly and temporary and met the wellspring of the true living water, which is, of course, the spirit that Jesus had to give her so that she might taste of eternal life and never thirst again, is what he says. I was excited for that sermon. 
I was excited for John 10, the good shepherd, as I'm passionate about good leadership in the church, about leaders who will love their sheep, take care of them, and not run from them when they need them. I loved preaching that sermon. That was important to me. And this one is at the culmination of it all. Because in it, Jesus sets the example of how to love people. Again, just like John 13, when he got down and washed the disciples' feet like a slave would. The king of the universe washing feet like a slave. This is another example of that reality of who Jesus was, who he is today, and who we're called to be as his hands and feet here on the earth. As the body of Christ here on the earth, we're meant to live like this. And it's in this story, the restoration of Peter, that you see Jesus showing the kind of man, the kind of God he is. If you remember earlier on in the chapter, we, at the beginning of chapter 1, we talked about Jesus providing them a meal. They remember they don't re recognize him. And he's standing on the shore and he tells them where to cast the nets and they find some miraculous catch. And John, he knows it's the Lord. And Peter rushes to him and they have this moment on, on the shoreline and Jesus provides them a, a meal. It's where we came from. And our passage opens up there. We're going from verse 15 to the end of the book. It opens up there. Remember, Jesus has just fed them a meal that he prepared, of fish that he had, and of a fish that they had brought from their catch. And he provided them a meal. And it's in that context, the context of Jesus providing for Peter as a sheep, that he can ask what he's about to ask of Peter. Because Peter is not asked to shepherd without first recognizing that he's one of Jesus' sheep. It is imperative, it is required that Jesus first provide for Peter, for Peter to be able to provide for the flock of God. Peter has no ability, he has no calling, he has no chance to succeed as a shepherd without first being a sheep of Jesus. And so we see in what we read last week that Jesus provides for Peter with Peter as a sheep and then asks him this huge, huge calling. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Jesus is making a public statement. Now it's a confusing statement because it seems like a weird thing to ask. Like, Peter, do you really think you love me? Some people say it's more than the fishing. I think that's probably unlikely. It's possible. Like, do you love me more than fishing? Because I'm going to make you a shepherd. And that's what Jesus is saying. I actually don't think that's what he's saying. Do you love me more than these other disciples do? I think that's what he's saying. 
Which is an odd thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Like, Peter, do you really love me more than these other disciples? But you have to understand what Peter is doing, or excuse me, what Jesus is doing in this moment is reinstating Peter publicly. Peter's denial was a very public reality. And Jesus, as much as he is forgiving Peter and restoring him to relationship with him, he is doing something else, and that's reinstating Peter to leadership amongst the disciples. We know if you read the Gospels, Peter's always at the forefront of these close disciples. He's always the first to do, the first to go. He's the de facto leader of them. And the leader of the disciples denied Jesus three times openly. So when Jesus makes this statement in front of the disciples, it's not just about restoring their relationship, it's about reinstating him to leadership. How do I know that? Well, the terminology he uses is that of shepherding. Shepherding is the key to understand what Jesus is trying to say to Peter. We have to understand what he means by shepherding. If you remember back to John 10, which John 10 should be at the forefront of your mind in your reading about shepherds, right? What's the great passage on shepherds in John? It's Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Why is he bringing up shepherding? Well, if you remember all the way back when we were in John 10, I brought up Jeremiah 23 and some of these old, other Old Testament passages. Shepherd was a term generically to refer to a leader of Israel. Now, it started around the concept of David being a shepherd, and then he became king. But shepherd was used for prophets and priests and other leaders and rulers in ancient Israel. So it was a common term to use for leadership. So when he's calling Peter to shepherd, he's calling him to leadership. He's not calling him just to to, you know, be a kind person or to be real nice to people. This is a leadership call. And leadership looks like a specific thing in Christianity, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it doesn't look like the world, right? It doesn't look like the world. It looks like what Jesus says, the least of you will be the greatest. The one who serves the most is the greatest leader. That's the life Jesus is calling Peter to. So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Are you going to be the leader of these disciples? Peter said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I love this because Peter has been kind of this brash, impulsive doer. And here he's He's not going to make some great claim to fame. He's not going to do some, some massive sign. All he can bring himself to say is, You know, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. Tend my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. 
lead my people. And then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And as if the third time wasn't obvious to us who have read the gospel, it says explicitly Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time. Why was Peter grieved? Because Jesus is clearly referring to three denials. Peter denied Jesus three times. And he reinstates, Jesus reinstates Peter three times. Why is Peter grieved? Peter knows what the Lord is doing. And he's calling out the exact point of his pain. By the third time saying, do you really love me? He's calling back to that moment of Peter's most epic failure. And like all of us, when the Lord brings our failures to light, it's grieving. We're grieved at our failure. Peter says, yes, Lord. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus gives Peter the same call three times. Tend my flock, take care of my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Peter is called to lead this fledgling church, this fledgling reality that, that Jesus is going back to heaven to be with his father and he's leaving someone in charge and that man is Peter. And all Peter can say, all Peter can rely on, he can't make some grandiose claim, he can't say, Lord, I would do anything for you. He can't, all he can say is that you know the truth of my heart, Lord. And you know that I love you. All he can rely on is Jesus' supernatural knowledge of who he is. Jesus has that way of bringing us to our failures to restore us. You know, sometimes it almost feels like uh, more hurt <laughs> that Jesus walks us into. Like, why would you bring me here, Lord? Why is this the place you're bringing me to? Can we do something else? But Jesus knows if you don't step back into that place, there's no healing. It's a festering wound. It's scabbed over and decaying. There is no tending that wound without Jesus walking you back to it. I identify with Peter in this passage because of my own failings. Peter loves the Lord. Peter loves the Lord. And yet he failed him. And I walked that path. You know, because of my own sin, I lost my youth pastorate that I had 
and I lost my community. I lost a community that I had had for all of my life up to that point. And I was sent out of the church never to return, it felt like. It felt like I would never be part of the church again. And if I'm honest, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be part of the church again. And the Lord, in His miraculous working, in His holding power on my life, ended up sending me to Western Seminary, and I followed Him. I learned the price of disobedience. And so I went to Western Seminary with the intent of becoming a professor. I thought maybe I could teach pastors to do it better. How to love better. How to be better people. I thought maybe I would make more of an impact that way. And it was while I was there doing that, uh, my, my mentor Gary, um, he's a professor at Western. Uh, I was going to his church and I'd been going for just about a year. I, honestly, at that point, church I was just kind of neutral to me. Church was not something I really was like happy about going to, but I at least wasn't at the point I hated going, which was a, a step up for me. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, it's not so bad. It's okay. I'll go in and then leave and not talk to anyone. And that's about what I wanted to do. And Gary approached me, and I didn't know this till later, but he approached me because the Lord told him to about taking a youth intern position. And Gary said to me, what would you think about that, Jeremy? How does that sound to you? If you know, you became a youth intern. I said, Gary, that sounds horrible. Said, Thank you. That was my response. But even in the moment, I could feel the redemption at work. Because that's just like the Lord. Because I remember this passage. I remember Jesus saying three times to Peter, Do you love me? I remember Peter's grief at being asked the third time. And me too who never wanted to be in the church ever again, why would the Lord ask me to go back to youth ministry? And as a lowly intern, because he knew if I didn't step back into that place of pain, I never would find a home in the church again. He knew. That is the Lord's way. Unfortunately, we are so pain-averse that we tend to run from Jesus doing those things. My, my uh, admonition to you tonight is if Jesus is leading you toward your pain points, don't run. It's the only way to find healing. It's the only way to find healing is to walk into them. Don't put yourself in a dangerous situation, by the way. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the processing and the thinking through and the working through with God and with people is the work he does to bring healing. Don't be afraid. Don't fear the process. Jesus knows what he's doing. So I understand where Peter's at. I understand where Peter's at because I've lived it. The conversation seems to take an odd turn, though. In verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. 
But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Now, here's where shepherding becomes the key. What is Jesus saying to Peter here? What is Jesus saying to Peter here? He's saying that as a young man, he's had the freedom to do what he wants. But as an old man, he will stretch out his hands, which is a euphemism for crucifixion. Jesus is telling Peter <coughs> that he's going to die. Bless you. Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to die. And he's alluding to the fact that he's going to be crucified. Two things, both of them very powerful to me, that I learned this week, that I thought about the connections. One, what did John 10 say about the Good Shepherd? What makes someone a good shepherd? What does makes Jesus a good shepherd? It says this. When the wolf comes, they lay down their life for the sheep. Peter was a hired hand when he denied Jesus. But the day will come when Peter will prove the kind of shepherd he is by dying for his flock, just like Jesus did. He will show the kind of shepherd he is by glorifying God in death. That's powerful. And two, if you remember back to John 13, what did Peter say he would do for Jesus? He said, I will die for you, Jesus. And when he said, I will die for you, Jesus said, would you really die for me, Peter? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus is telling Peter he's going to have the chance to go back and fulfill his promise to Jesus that he would die for him. That's powerful. Peter had made a promise to the Lord that he would die for him. And he failed when the time came. And the Lord tells him, your failure is not permanent. I will let you fulfill your word. And while you were young, you were free and went where you wanted. But as an old man, they're going to bind you up and crucify you, leading you where you don't want to go, to the place of death. And by that death, you're going to glorify me. You'll, you'll get to fulfill your word, the word 
that you said, when you said, I will die for you, Jesus. Peter's going to have a chance to fulfill that word. Jesus says, in the meantime, till that prophecy comes true. And here's what's so beautiful, too. Jesus predicted the betrayal, didn't he? And it came to pass. And now he predicts, he predicts the devotion of Peter. And it too will come to pass. And what does church tradition tell us about Peter's death? It tells us he was crucified, just like his Lord was. And when it came time to crucify him, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord and asked to be crucified upside down as he was not worthy to die like Jesus. That's the kind of change that came over Peter because of Jesus' words. Because of these words of Jesus, that's the kind of change that took hold of Peter. He was not the same man after these words from Jesus that he was before them. Peter saw the depth of his failure. And he saw the power of God's restoration. And it changed him. And the sad reality of, of the state of the church is that if we don't give people the chance to be restored... We don't give them the chance to be changed like that. We don't give them the chance to see the depth of their failure and then the, the power of God's grace. We just give them the chance to see the depth of their failure. And that's where they're left. They're left like Judas, not like Peter. Steeped in their failure with no hope. church's job, the church's goal should be to restore people like Peter was. Like I've said before, it's a pretty unbelievably heinous sin to deny the Lord at his crucifixion. And yet this man became the leader of the entire church, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, and and church tradition tells us then the leader at the church of Rome, where he was probably executed by Nero, the emperor. One of the greatest heroes the church has ever known. He failed massively. He failed Jesus massively. He became the hero of the church. Listen to how much these words have impacted Peter. We're blessed to have two letters from Peter in the canon of Scripture. And see what kind of man he became. Listen to how these shepherding words have impacted Peter in 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's talking to elders, leaders in the church. He says, do this, leaders. Shepherd the flock of God among you. 
Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Don't do it because you have to, but do it voluntarily. Do it because it's, it's the right thing to do. Do it because you want to do it. Do it according to the will of God, and don't do it for sordid gain. Don't do it so you can become rich. Don't do it so you can have a private jet. Don't do it so you can have this sense of prestige and power and feel like you can be in control of everyone. Do it with eagerness. Because you're excited to lead the church of God. What a privilege. Don't lord it over those who've been allotted to your care. Don't be like the world. Don't lead like the world leads. I'm your leader. Do what I tell you. Don't lord it over your people, but instead prove to be examples to the flock of how to serve, of how to live. And remember when the chief shepherd appears, Peter always knew he was an under-shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the un of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Remember, God is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Peter had learned his lesson from what Jesus had said to him. His failure shaped him. And the prophecy that Jesus made hung over him. Listen to this in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, verse 13, it says this, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He says, the Lord, he told me I was going to die. And I can feel it's close when he writes Second Peter. The Lord told me my earthly dwelling is soon coming to its end. But in the meantime, what was Peter called to do in John? Follow him. Until that day comes, when your death is coming, follow after me, Peter. Follow my example and be an example to the flock. Follow me. Follow me. Peter turned around. This is verse 20. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That same disciple Peter saw. And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I love it. He's a changed man, but he's still Peter. <laughs> he's like, what about him? You're telling me I'm going to be crucified? What about this guy? What's his deal? The Lord said, if I want him to remain until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. Jesus said, I can do what I want with this guy. Your job is to follow me, Peter. 
be about your business. It doesn't matter what I have in store for him. You follow me. And isn't that always our call? And don't we always do that? Well, what about this guy? Why don't I have his life? Why don't I have his stuff? Why don't I have his calling? Why don't I have his gifts? Why am I not smart as her? Why am I not as pretty as her? Why am I, I mean, we always do that. Jesus says, don't worry about them. You follow me. But also I think there's some heartbreak here too because John is the author of this gospel. When he writes this, the, the consensus is that he's probably a very old man. And he's coming to the end of his life and he's lived a long life. All the apostles have been martyred. All of them have been killed except John. And John is writing this probably in 90 AD, close to the end of the first, first century. And guess what? Jesus still hasn't come back. Paul died. James was the first apostle to be killed. Peter died. All the other apostles have died, and only John is left. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? John says, because Jesus had said that comment. What If I want him to re remain until I return, what's that to you? Because of that, there was a tradition that had come up, a rumor, that John was going to live until Jesus is returning. Now that he's an old man and he's about to die, people are like, well, what the heck? Is Jesus not coming back? Is he not going to return? He said that John was going to survive until he returned. John has to clarify for them. He says, no. The saying went out among the brethren that that, that disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He just said, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? Even then, people are misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to do as I will. He was not saying that that would happen. And here's where John has his great reveal, doesn't he? He's hit it. He's hit it, the whole gospel. He says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote, this, wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, me as this mysterious author, this mysterious person writing all these things down, I am that beloved disciple. I'm the one who leaned back on Jesus' bosom at the table and asked, who's going to betray you? I'm the one who raced with Peter into the tomb, and I leaned in and looked, but I didn't go in, Peter went in. And I'm the one who followed at a distance and whom Peter pointed to and said, what about him? I'm that witness. And all these things that I wrote, I was there for. I saw them. I witnessed them. And John says, just like Peter is the leader, that's his calling. Peter is the leader, that was his calling. He's going to be the shepherd. That's what God called him to. In the same way, I, John, was called to be a witness. 
I think John identifies his own calling here too. Why did John live so long? Why did John not die a martyr's death like every one of the other apostles? Why did he live until probably his 90s? Why did he live so long when everyone else was dying? John says, my calling, just like Peter's was to be a shepherd, my calling was to be a witness. To see these things and record them. And what did he say? Why he recorded them? He said, so that you might believe. Remember back in chapter 20, he said, the reason I wrote these things down was so that by hearing them, you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. And by believing in them, you might find life. That was what he said his purpose in writing is. And now he reveals, I'm that disciple, that anonymous disciple who's been through the whole gospel. I'm him. And he says, not only that, I wrote down only a sampling of what Jesus did. Verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that would be written. If we were to write down everything that God accomplished in Jesus and through the power of His Spirit, the world would not be a wide enough library to contain every book that would be written. John brings us back to the center of his gospel, that in Jesus and by the Spirit, the Lord accomplished everything that humanity needed for salvation, for faithfulness, for good life, and to redeem. Redeem us and his creation. And that is where John ends his gospel. As a witness to these things. And so too, so too we, we have the opportunity to join John as witnesses. As witnesses to the things that Jesus not only has done, but is doing currently. In our lives, in the lives of those we love around us, for those who believe in Jesus, we know He is still at work. And He's still going to be at work forever. That He is going to continue to do His work of redemption and salvation, and He's going to make it happen, and we're going to work alongside and we too join John as witnesses to the fact that God has done so much for us, is doing so much for us, and will continue to do so much for us and for all those, even those who don't believe, he's doing for them. So we need to join our voices to John's as witness, as witness to who God is and what he's done and what he is doing, what he will do. this story though we see the heart of the matter we see what redemption looks like accomplished it's not just kind of this uh, ethereal 
thing we talk about. Oh yeah, I've been saved. Oh yeah, well the Lord redeemed us. We actually see what it looks like. We We see what it looks like played out. We see what it looks like actually lived out. Jesus forgiving a man who denied him three times when he was about to be crucified. And not only forgiving him, but then giving him as a, a place as the leader of his church. That's redemption. That's what redemption looks like. Live that. Just like the Lord knew the hearts of all those untrustworthy believers who did not really believe in John 2. It said he knew all the hearts of men. Here in Peter, he knows Peter's heart. And Peter was right. Jesus confirmed that Peter was right. That he knew that Peter loved him. And he gave him a place accordingly. Because he knew Peter's heart. This is significant. A significant sermon because this is what I I call this church into being around. That wellspring, wellspring church would be a place where people would come into contact with the wellspring of living waters and find life for their souls. But in particular, my prayer was, and everyone who came on to leadership with, with this church knew that that was what I was calling this church to. In particular, that church hurt people would find out here. That people who had been broken by their own experiences with the church, who had been broken by ones that they loved their experiences with the church, or even those who are so common among my millennial generation who had just heard a bad story and decided that you know what, I really want nothing to do with the church. That sounds pretty awful. Which there are many of those too. But they would find a home. Find a church that would be different, that would be quick to offer forgiveness, to recognize the seriousness of sin and the weight of it and the evil of it and the pain of it, but also not quick to cast out. Quick to show grace, to show mercy, to show kindness, to show what Jesus showed to Peter. At this core, core ideal of this church. So as I close tonight, I just want to reemphasize that Wellspring is the type of place that, that broken, church broken people can find out. And we're going to continue to make it that place for all those who have had pain from what the church can often throw out. From, from spiritual abuse, from other church realities that have hurt and harmed them, that we can find them a place where they can find a home. And as I've said many times, uh, we don't get to just bow out on church. If you're a Christian, you don't get to just bow out on church because the church is the plan. The church is the plan, and I had to learn that myself. Community is the plan. There is no individual Christianity. Not in the Bible, anyway. We live this life out. We live the Christian life out as a community. We live it out together. And there is no plan B for what Jesus has done. To 
this is it. It's the church. And that's a hard lesson, and it's a painful lesson if you've been hurt by the church to think you have to be a part of it. My goal is to make a place where people would feel joy at being part of a community again. That they would remember what they might have once had, that they would see maybe what they never had recognize the reality of what church can be, what it should be, what God called it to be. And that's my prayer. As we close this book of John, that's my prayer for Wellspring. It would be a place where people find the joy of being the church again. Let me bless you as a close. Lord, thank you for each person in this room. Lord, thank you for their lives and their stories, the stories uh, that I do know and even the stories that I don't know and the ones that are so deep and painful and grievous that they would never want to tell anyone. I'm sure every person in this room has had evil done to them and sin. Uh, They've had to pay a huge toll in their lives for the sins of others that have happened to them. And Lord, I pray in those deepest areas, it's not my place to know if I can help, Lord, but let me be a help and a balm. But ultimately, they don't need me. They need you. And so I pray for all those stories in this room, all the deep parts of their hearts in which there is pain and suffering, would you lead them back to those areas? As painful as it is, as, as hurtful as it may be, would you lead them back so that they might find true healing, that they might find real wholeness again, and that they might know the joy and freedom and power and grace that you have to offer through suffering. Lord, you were not afraid to suffer. You suffered greatly on our behalf. Help us not be afraid to suffer for your name, the same way you suffered for our salvation. We praise you. We praise you tonight. And I pray great blessing. And I pray particularly great blessing as you walk this community through each other's pains, through each other's hurts. Would you bring renewed healing, renewed life? Would your spirit of grace be at work in each one of us? Not just so that we might find healing, but like 2 Corinthians says, so that with the comfort with which we have been comforted, we might comfort others. And Lord, whatever way any one of us can be a help and a boon to each other, a balm to each other's hearts, would you help us walk in that? And would you help us extend that same grace? That we be filled with your spirit of grace so that like Jesus, we could offer the same restoration to all the Peters that will come into this church and into our lives. Pray all these blessings and all these things by your son's precious name and by the immense and unending power of your great spirit.